from KDNK Community Access Radio in Carbondale, Colorado, in the United States, this is program number five of the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. I'm Nick Eisenberg. When blind people go places, we don't experience them like our sighted friends. We don't see beautiful mountains or romantic sunsets. The goal of this program is to identify and even create experiences that are more meaningful or just more fun for us and our sighted traveling companions. Frequently, as people lose their eyesight, they become more and more isolated. The Tactile Traveler hopes to empower blind and low-vision people not only to go literally around the world, but around the block to new adventures in their life. Blind ranges from people who are visually impaired and glasses and contact lenses no longer help them live a normal life to people like me, who are totally blind and to sighted parents who have a blind child, to blind parents who have sighted children, and people of all ages, interests, and physical abilities. On today's program, we're going to explore the dynamics of blind people being grabbed by sighted people wherever they go. Learn about a guide to 200 braille trails and century gardens. Meet the world's best-known blind traveler. Get tips on easier ways to find luggage. Play a little blind tennis. And get special tips on reducing our chances of getting the coronavirus. It's a rare day that I walk more than a block from my house when a well-meaning person doesn't grab me. It happens to all of us all the time. Sometimes it's even worse. One day, and this was in my neighborhood, I stood at the intersection, busy intersection, to wait with my white cane and dark glasses to cross the street. The tactile traveler's Lydia Eckert. Out of nowhere, these two burly guys took me, one took me on my left, underneath my left arm, the other one underneath my right arm, lifted me and took me across the busy intersection, set me down before I had even a chance to scream that I'm being kidnapped. <laughs> they disappeared. They have no way of knowing how the people they grabbed might react. Danielle Montour. I've been raped and sexually assaulted, but I'd be pretty paralyzed with terror because I've had negative experiences traveling before being assaulted by people while traveling while traveling alone and especially with two people who are much bigger and probably a lot stronger than me that would be pretty scary especially because I wouldn't exactly know where they were going to take me you know like they might not have just been across the street it might have been somewhere else and while people might say, oh, it's broad daylight, that thing won't happen, you never know. A friend of mine said that her blind former husband was standing at an intersection in New Zealand when two big guys there did the exact same thing. 
he had no way of knowing if the men knew that he was in front of a prison where he worked as a parole officer. You can imagine how scary that was for him, too. Jim Stokes, Ph.D., is a blind psychologist, and he says he also gets grabbed. It happens all the time. People, when you're crossing the street or waiting at a bus stop, people will grab you and try to assist you in a assertive, physical way. He also says you're usually better off being diplomatic than aggressive. Just try to disengage yourself from them physically and, and let them know that you're okay just by saying, no, please don't touch me. I'm okay. Let go of my arm. And, and just to be clear about that without pushing back or trying to be fighting them because they're just trying to be helpful. And most typically, they just don't know the best way to do that. So just to be clear with your voice, please stop and let them know this is the best way to help me or I don't need any help, but I appreciate your efforts to help me. Jim says if you would like assistance, ask if you can hold their arm by the elbow and walk half a step behind them. I was standing at a bus stop in Denver when two drunks were fighting over which bus I should take. One of them even flagged down a bus and pushed me on it. So I asked Jim, what do you do if the person who tries to help you is drunk, high, or mentally ill? Well, I've taken a, what's called a one-touch self-defense class through my uh, Department of Voc- Rehab training program, and they taught us to disengage from people, and it depends on how, where they grab you, of course, but if they grab your arm to just flatten your hand out and jerk your hand away from them and then ask them to stop and let you be, let them know you're fine. Don't forget if you're sighted, the person you would like to help could also be drunk, high, or mentally ill. So unless it's just a real emergency, ask before touching someone. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler on KDNK. Phyllis Chavez has a follow-up on a story we did on an earlier program. On program number two, we did a story on the world's first rail trail on Independence Pass near Aspen, Colorado. The first Braille nature trail was opened in 1967. Since then, more than 200 braille trails and sensory gardens, including more than 100 trails in 36 states and Puerto Rico. Here in the United States, tactile traveler listener Vivica Pipper sent us a link to a directory of those trails. The best part is that it's free and online at naturefortheblind.com. The directory also includes lots of information on additional nature for folks who are blind and for people with additional disabilities. Thank you, Phyllis, and thank you, Vivica. When Tony Giles heads off on a solo international backpacking trip, he never forgets extra batteries for his hearing aids and tips for his cane. The 41-year-old is hard of hearing as well as blind, and by his count, he's traveled to 124 of the 193 countries in the United Nations. Tony is on the road a lot, but the tactile traveler's Jason Struther recently caught up with him. Tony Giles uploads YouTube videos that he shoots himself from some of his trips around the globe. 
There's one that he recorded from the back of a motorbike that took him through the streets of Haiti. Or the time he attended a traditional drum and dance ceremony in Ethiopia. And another that captures the roar of a Turkish waterfall. For more than 20 years, Tony has set off on his trips by himself, though sometimes his girlfriend joins him. She's blind, too. I wanted to find out more about his travels, so I caught up with Tony over Skype while he was back home in England. Hello. Hi, is that Tony? Yeah. Hey, Tony, it's Jason. How are you doing today? I'm okay. Tony tells me he gets a lot of help from strangers that he meets while on the road. But he sometimes has to explain that travel isn't just about sightseeing. It's not about just seeing the nature or the beauty. It's about eating the food and, you know, hearing the music and meeting the people. That's what it's really about because without people, you're not, you know, you haven't got anything. Haven't you? you haven't got a country. So it's about breaking those barriers down, really, and then and, and simplifying it. A lot of blind Americans or, and maybe blind people around the world are intimidated to travel. I think many are even scared to take domestic trips by themselves. Uh, what is it that you think holds many visually impaired people back from traveling outside of their comfort zone? Well, I think it, it's, it's the same thing. It holds many people back from traveling outside their comfort zone. And it's the fear of the unknown and that idea of, oh, what do I do if I get lost? How do I talk to a stranger? You know, will they rob me? You know, I think they're the sort of first thoughts that go through a lot of people's mind. You know, both both blind, visually impaired, and, and sighted. How much preparation do you do before going on an international trip? So I'll I'll research some the country, obviously, you know, public transport. How do I get to the airport? From the airport to my accommodation, I'll call the airline company and say I'm blind. I need assistance. So I'll do all this research and then I'll put it onto my laptop or I'll put it onto my um, little digital recorder. So then I've got the information uh, when I'm traveling. What advice can you give to a blind person who has not traveled overseas before? Um, but the, main, the key is to do the research. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, Ask the accommodation. Is it, you know, the, we got a room on the ground floor, or the elevator with Braille, or talking, or you know, I I like to find walking tours, you know, free walking tours, like get the information and meet other people. I'll look for museums on the internet with audio guides, or um, museums that have guides, you know, things like that. You know, especially somewhere in the states, there's lots of that. I mean, yeah, as a visually impaired person, we get used to asking, talking to strangers for help. Can you, you know, what's on this menu? Is that light green? Uh, but, you know, outside of traveling to the United States or Australia, New Zealand, you, of course, have visited a lot of countries where English is not the lingua franca. Uh, how do you get by linguistically in a country where, you know, hearing people speak English is, is, is not so common? I try and learn, hello, thank you, water, toilet, in uh, the language of every country I'm visiting. And then the first time I went to a, a non-English speaking country was uh, Vietnam, really. My mum found a, a guest house online and we were able to contact them. And the owner spoke a little bit of English and I basically told him the places they wanted to visit. And then he got me a motorbike taxi every day. And I, I rode around the city and I just told the taxi driver um, the places 
uh, I wanted to go the names and he took me there. You know, you talk about walking around countries like Vietnam or in other Southeast Asian cities. They can be pretty hazardous to get around for a visually impaired person. I I was almost clipped multiple times recently by motorbikes in Vietnam. How do you safely navigate streets uh, that really aren't accessible for the visually impaired or really anyone with a disability? Well, I, um, I sort of try and follow the traffic. Obviously, I can hear it and feel it. I mean, the first time I went to Thailand, it was a complete shock. You know, I said, oh, how am I going to get around here? Because suddenly you're walking and then there's a hole and then the open drains and then there's just bricks everywhere. So you sort of ended up walking on the street and you're sort of literally following the traffic. I, you know, I sort of use public transport to get around, like, like motorbike taxis. And I sort of rely on the people uh, to help me. And um, just ask, oh, are you going to the shops or so I meet people and get around that way. Sometimes I've had to join uh, tours to, you know, to get to visit places I wanted to because it's just not um, accessible any other way. So I remember um, trying to cross the street in Vietnam. It's like 3,000 bicycles all moving at once and you just sort of move with them. And I think probably not seeing at times makes it easier because if you ever could see, I think you sort of be paralyzed with fear. As well as you don't see, you just sort of go with the flow. Tony Giles, it was great to talk to you. Safe travels and hope to catch you on the road sometime. Thanks, Jason. It's a pleasure. Jason, how can people follow Tony's travels? Tony is very active on social media. He also has his own website, TonyTheTraveler.com. Traveler is spelled with two L's. That's the British way of spelling that word, evidently. There, he uploads videos and pictures, has a blog, and of course, he uploads much of his material to YouTube as well. And you can always search for Tony on Google or whatever search engine you use. His name, Tony Giles, G-I-L-E-S. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate your story. Thanks a lot, Nick. Good to talk to you. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Finding a suitcase at luggage claim can be a real challenge for all of us. Lydia Eckert has some suggestions you might find useful. First, decorate your suitcases with lots of brightly colored duct tape, including fluorescent orange, yellow, pink, brown, black, green, zebra stripes, tie-dye, It makes it easy to spot them as they come down the carousel. Luggage claim and luggage storage rooms, if you have low vision, if you need to describe them to others. They will see your luggage coming from a long way. They will be able to guide you to them if you carry a backpack that you need with you on a plane, train, or bus that you won't need to get into until you reach your hotel or your destination. Put it inside your suitcase. That will take a weight off your shoulders and will be one less thing to worry about. And finally, take pictures of your suitcases and backpack with your cell phone. That way, if you need to describe your suitcases or backpacks to luggage claim or strangers helping you, they'll be able to see what they really look like. Thank you, Lydia. In previous shows, we went to a 5K race in Littleton, Colorado, and a half marathon in New York City. 
Now reporter Tom Walker in Leeds, England, is going to introduce us to a sport available in 32 countries, but only so far outside of the United States. Tom starts his story with an interview with Kelly Cronin. I had a friend that played visually impaired tennis and then I got together with my other half um, and he plays and is also a level one tennis coach. So I started coming down with them and I really enjoyed it. So I carried on. What are the challenges for you as a visually impaired person? The fact that I never see the ball. Some of the higher sight classes actually do see it at some point, but for me, I never see the ball at all, even when I'm connecting with my racket. So the main challenges are learning to track it, learning to differentiate between the sounds of the different shots, working out what speed it's travelling, what height the bounce is. There's a lot that has to happen in your head between that ready play and you hitting the ball. Although Kelly has had a few weeks off for her second year law degree exams and was therefore feeling slightly rusty, it wasn't too long before she was returning serve from Ben Green, who took up the sport in October 2012. Ben was inspired to try tennis at least in part by the achievements of other disabled athletes. There was a lot of sport in the media at the time with the um, Olympic and Paralympic Games and there was uh, a good Wimbledon that year. Ben, can we, do, can we specify which direction you're going to hit the ball into? Cross so, we're gonna, <clears throat> so you can stand the right-hand side. For tennis coach Cesar Guineadec, the experience he's gained of working with visually impaired players helps him to ensure they learn the correct techniques. I believe it's understanding what the players need because I'm not in the position, I, I can see the ball fully, they don't. So I base my tennis session on the experience. I talk to the player, I try to find out what the player's needs is and try to exploit the weaknesses if, if the player is willing to do that and try to slightly change it because for anybody, not only for the VI player, to change something in their habits is extremely challenging for anybody. And one player who definitely appreciates the coaching method Caesar and the other coaches use is Kaz Nazir. Because they actually listen to you as in what you need and what you need from them rather than saying, right, this is what we're going to do. They understand you and they provide information in the way that you can access it. For example, they don't just speak at you. They actually show you on the tennis court where the baseline is, where the service line is, where your service boxes are and everything like that. And it makes it far more accessible. You can build a mental map and, and work from there on in, as I do. So how does the sport actually work? Dave Hillier, Disability Tennis Development Manager at the Tennis Foundation, says visually impaired tennis is an adapted version of the traditional game. So we play on a slightly smaller court, like we would do with all beginner players, and we use different balls that allow visually impaired or blind people the ability to kind of track the ball and be able to hit the ball. We also allow the players to have more bounces of the ball than the traditional one-bounce rule, which allows them the opportunity to play and rally and compete. So, for example, a totally blind player, how, how would it work for them, for instance? Uh, a totally blind player would play on a tennis court roughly about the size of a badminton court with a smaller racket and a sponge ball that makes a noise when it bounces. And the totally blind players will be allowed three bounces of the ball, which allows them to track the ball and to know exactly where it is before they hit the ball back. Apart from some of the rules like the no volleys and the fact you have to say ready and play, it is 
a tennis game. We're playing with rackets, we're playing with balls. The shots are essentially the same. You've still got your forehand, your backhand, your slices, your overarm, underarm serves. And with the new rules that have recently come in, we are playing on recognised tennis court sizes. The players I spoke to are all at different levels. Kelly, for instance, is a national champion. But the one thing that unites them all is ambition for themselves and the sport. This is shared by Dave Hillier. The future of the sport is really that we just want it to grow and we want to get more people playing. But certainly the real future of the sport and the, and the vision of the people within the sport is, is for the sport to go international and to start to have international competitions and really start to get it on a level with some of the other kind of disability sports and Paralympic sports that are out there. OK, I've watched the visually impaired players playing. Now it's my turn. So the coach Caesar has given me a racket. It's the type of racket that younger players would use. I've also got a ball. It's a sponge ball with a rattle in the middle. And here we go. Ah, the old skills, they're still there. Yeah, they're still there, yeah. I'm on the service line and I'm about to try and serve the ball. I haven't done this for many a year, so this could be interesting. Are you ready? Yes. Play. Caesar and I have just actually had a rally and it's over 30 years since I've played tennis properly. So I'm feeling a little bit exhausted. And one difference I've already noticed is you can't run to the net and play volleys, which is what I used to do because, of course, I could see the ball more easily at the net than I could standing on the baseline. It was brilliant, to be honest, because you, well, you haven't played for 30 years and we had a proper rally, your serve went into the service block where you should go, and you get yourself ready for the next incoming ball. And I believe, you know, the rally we had, that was absolutely outstanding. Are you not just saying that? No, 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 I'm honest. When I say you're rubbish, you're rubbish. When I say you're good, you're good. Wow. Tom, you played blind tennis. How did you like it? Yeah, it's quite good fun. I find the problem with it is getting the rally going, really. I think if you're playing people who are really good at it, that's probably completely different. Thank you, Tom. If you'd like to play blind tennis, Google International Blind Tennis Association to find a country you'd like to play in. You're listening to The Tactile Traveler on KDNK Community Access Radio. I'm Nick Eisenberg. Everyone has to use good judgment to reduce their odds of catching the coronavirus. But there are some extra steps that those of us who are blind and visually impaired can do to reduce our chances of becoming a statistic instead of a spectator. Dr. Richard Davison is a professor and vice chair for quality and clinical affairs at the University of Colorado School of Ophthalmology. First, Dr. Davison says it's okay to touch your face with proper precautions. The important thing really is never touching your face without first washing your hands or using an alcohol-based hand sanitizer. You know, that first and foremost is the most important thing to do, especially, you know, if you're out and about in the community or you're at a restaurant or taking public transportation. I always think it's a good idea to, during this time of year, whether it's influenza or coronavirus, to clean off the white cane periodically. Um, also, if you're using a seeing eye dog, a guide dog, cleaning off the harness, using a some kind of a wipe or a hand sanitizer would be good, just because they could get exposed there too. I think 
you know, because you're visually impaired, it's important to take those extra precautions. Since the best way to have a sighted person guide us is to have us hold them by the back of one of their arms and walk half a step behind them, it's pretty easy to make both of us safer instead of looking straight forward at the person guiding us and finally plan ahead to avoid infected areas. But if you find yourself in one, keep in constant contact with your hotel's desk clerks, concierge, and bell persons to see if there are new places you should go, because if you're in a town you're not familiar with, since you won't be able to read maps, you won't be able to find dangerous places on the maps that you've heard about on the news. It's my talking scale, reminding us that we'd like you to weigh in on how we're doing. Please let us know by sending an email to the tactile traveler at gmail.com. We spell traveler the American way with one L. We'd like to welcome KSUN in Parachute, Colorado to the tactile traveler. This program is also being broadcast on the Audio Information Network of Colorado and in additional states. It's also available by typing the Tactile Traveler into any search engine and available wherever you get podcasts and by asking your smart speaker for the Tactile Traveler podcast. We'd like to thank the following people and organizations that made today's program possible. Trevor Swank, Colorado Audio, Video, and Design, Paula Froim, Sophia Williams, Debbie O'Leary, Be My Eyes Microsoft Disability Tech Support, Lucas Turner, and Raleigh Burley. I'm Nick Eisenberg. This has been the Tactile Traveler, empowering blind and low vision people to explore the world and helping our sighted friends see the world in a new way. This is a production of KDNK Community Access Radio, Carbondale, Colorado. Mm-hmm.